This evening to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, famously known as the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Decided to do a short series on love, finishing our longer series on Genesis. Also thought it might be fitting as we've been looking at God's profound love for us, his sovereign love by way of the canons of Dort, that we might think about our calling now to display the love we know to one another here. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'd like to give our attention tonight to verses 1 through 3, but I'd like to read the whole chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, the word of God, the Holy Spirit. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing." Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's bow before the Lord and ask for his blessing on his word to us, shall we? O Lord, our God, who has caused the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, would you grant that we may hear and read and learn and inwardly digest your word, that through the comfort of the Scriptures we may embrace and hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, and that our lives here upon earth may be shaped evermore by your love, and so we may glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, 1 Corinthians 13 is a very beautiful chapter, and yet it's a deeply challenging chapter. Its poetic beauty has a certain bite to it, if we listen closely. Because in the midst of all the harmony and beauty of the chapter, we recognize there's a dissonance in our own lives. In the midst of the the whole orb picture of this well-written poem, we discover the holes in in our own life that we often lack 
the main thing, love. And we know that as humans, we, we have a knack for missing the main thing. Maybe you put a roast in the oven, and you return home today to discover you didn't turn the oven on, or you made a great dessert but didn't put in the sugar. Or maybe you arranged a, a wonderful date with your wife, beautiful, wonderful restaurant and menu, beautiful weather, but you forgot to be kind and courteous to her, and you ruined the night. The main thing sometimes is missing, and often we're unaware of it. When it comes to love, we have to have sometimes our spouse tell us that didn't sound very well. Do you know how you sound it? Or maybe our children point out to us, or parents point out to their children. Do you know how that sounded? We can be really tone deaf when it comes to love. And what we have here in this passage of 1 Corinthians 13 is Christ's word to Christ's church. The one who has called us out of the world to himself, that's what the church is, is being formed in fashion to be the reflection and display of Jesus the Redeemer. And so he is calling his body to display the love that he has shown to us. And tonight in these first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, the Lord is warning his church that great giftedness without love is just empty noise. I'd like to consider, first of all, the context, and then the content, and then the Christ of this warning. The context of the warning that's given to us here, and then the content of the warning, what is said to us, and then finally the Christ of this warning. Well, first of all, the context of the warning. 1 Corinthians 13, as you know, is a, is a well-loved chapter. It's, it's well-known. In fact, it's not only well-loved and well-known among church-going Christians. There's, there's other people in the world who, who are somewhat aware of it. It's a passage that's read at many weddings, even perhaps of those who are not especially devoted to Christ. It's a passage of Scripture that finds its way into anthologies of great literature. It's a passage of Scripture that's been used in public state occasions. One writer older than I and with a better memory recalls it being read by Prince Charles at Diana's funeral in 1997 and being referred to in President Obama's first inaugural address in 2009. But while 1 Corinthians 13 is, is quite pleasing to the ear and feels so warmly soothing, what perhaps most people would be surprised by is that 1 Corinthians 13 is born out of and spoken into a context of remarkable conflict and controversy. This chapter 13, though it's often taken out of context, and hopefully I won't do that as we consider it by itself, is found squarely between chapter 12 and chapter 14, where in chapter 12, the apostle is speaking about the body. In chapter 14, further about spiritual gifts. And this chapter is spoken right into the midst. It's, it's written to a church that's having all kinds of conflict. In fact, we have to say that when the Corinthians first heard these words, they, they didn't walk away from the reading of this letter and think, boy, that chapter 13 is quite a jewel. I have to use that in weddings. They went away licking their wounds. This was painful. Remember what the Corinthian church was. In chapter 1, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. They're divided. 
And then you recall in chapter 6, Paul says, why are you taking each other to court and suing one another? And then in chapter 8, where's your regard for the weaker brother? You'd rather have your food and drink and trample over the conscience of your brother? And then in chapter 11, the rich are eating all their food at the Lord's Supper feast ahead of the poor. In fact, there's so much division at the Lord's Supper that the apostle says, for that reason, some are sick and some have fallen asleep. They've died in Corinth. And now in chapters 12 and 14, we learn about divisions related to spiritual gifts. And there's this this great craze in court for spiritual gifts, not for the good of the body, but for the promotion of self. In chapter 12, verse 7, the apostle begins to say, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And then he lists a bunch of spiritual gifts. But the problem in Corinth was they thought the manifestation of the Spirit was given to each one for the one, not for the all, for me, not for you. And so the the Corinthians were enamored with spiritual gifts. And the more spectacular, the more important, and the more spiritual gifted you are, the higher you stood on on the scale of spirituality. You, You belong to a different class than the inferior brother or sister who's not so gifted. And then when you come to chapter 14, there's all kinds of disorder in the church related to these spiritual gifts. Verse 26 of chapter 14, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification, building up. Verse 27, If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Goes on to say, verse 33, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And the chapter ends at verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. Which, by the way, is the the verse that is found in the introduction to our church order. But it actually comes out of context of worship. Where each is so concerned to have their place on the stage and do their performance that they're talking on top of each other, speaking in tongues, and prophesying over top of each other, and the service is chaotic because each one wants center stage. Interestingly, it doesn't appear there's a struggle to see who could visit more of the sick people or a struggle to see who could take a meal to the new mom or the sick one or a struggle to see who could wash the sidewalk out front but a struggle about who can have the place on the stage, public performance. Well, as we read all this, we're aware that the context is still with us, still sinful people, and we wrestle to want a place of preeminence. And our culture is very much concerned with self-fulfillment, isn't it? We have, we've come to a place where people are not embarrassed to say it, that I'm about self-fulfillment. In fact, when you, when you look at the emphasis today on sexual pleasure and sexual organs and sexual satisfaction and sexual identification, these are all the signs of a culture that is entirely turned in on itself to say it's about me. It's about me. That certainly influences the church, doesn't it? It influences the church in a big way. 
Sometimes it means that we don't want to serve in the church because I don't have time for that. Other times it means I want to serve in the church and I want to be recognized. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book on love, writes that Paul's dealing here with a general principle that applies to a specific problem that keeps on recurring. He writes, concerning this problem, you encounter it whenever you meet someone who wants to tell you about his or her gift, or gifting, as people like to say today. Ministers and pastors are sometimes asked, if I become a member of your church, will I get to use my gift? Will my gifts be recognized by the church? Or even, why aren't my gifts being recognized by this church? Paul valued the gifts of the Spirit, but he wasn't much interested in that approach. His first question at a church membership interview would not be about your gifts. He'd want to know about your love, about how you want to serve others for Jesus' sake. And then he writes a bit later, you may have met people who complain the church isn't recognizing my gifting, but you probably have never met anyone complain the church isn't recognizing my loving. We all know how easy it is in our sinful hearts to want recognition, to be more attuned to what people say about my service than whether my service was edifying. Sometimes we may want to serve simply so it gets done our way and not someone else's way. Paul, into this context, says at the end of chapter 12, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Well, tell us, Paul, what could be more excellent than spiritual gifts? Here Paul says, this is the better way. It's the way of love. Well, let's look at the content then of this warning, the content of this warning. The apostle in verses 1 through 3 here, he, he teaches us some Christian math with, with a surprising equation. He says, the greatest spiritual gift, a million-dollar gift, minus love, equals zero. He says things in these first verses that are quite shocking. Maybe to get the idea, you could imagine what you consider to be the greatest spiritual gift in the church or the greatest gift you possess. What's, what's, what's the greatest service you've rendered to the body of Christ? What's the one thing you would think, this is, this is clearly it. People recognize it. This gives me great satisfaction. I've seen many people benefited by, when I, by this when I do this. And if you've got that in your mind, then imagine the Apostle Paul approaching you and wanting to talk about your spiritual gift. And, and you get bright-eyed and get ready to be complimented. And then the Apostle Paul says, what you need to know is that it's completely worthless. It's a big zero on God's scale. That's essentially what he does to the Corinthians here. He begins with tongue speaking, which apparently in Corinth was the premier spiritual gift. It's the one you want to have. It shows everyone that you are really spiritual. Of course, in these days, we have to recognize the gifts he's mentioning here. Many of them are gifts that have ceased, right? They belong to the apostolic era before the Bible was completed. Tongue speaking and prophesying and and miracle-working faith and so forth were gifts. Paul mentions them earlier, back in 1 Corinthians 12. You can read about those there. Gifts of healing and so forth. 
but they were gifts unique to a period before the canon of Scripture was completed. And among these gifts, then, as I said, prophesying, or excuse me, tongue speaking, seemed to be the main one. And yet Paul takes it to a higher level, not just being able to speak in ordinary languages. Remember in Acts chapter 2, everyone hears the gospel being preached in their own tongue. But here Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men, I have the most eloquent tongue among men. Remember the, the Greeks loved rhetorician and oratory. And then he says, not only that, if I have the, the tongue of angels, if I could speak in the language of heaven, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. It said that there was a large metalworking industry in Corinth. Maybe you can imagine working in a metalworking industry, hearing the clanging of metal being beaten out. You'd want to put in earplugs, stuff your ears with Kleenex. The apostle says all that tongue speaking without love amounts to the same thing, just noise. One writer says of gongs and cymbals, speaks of them incapable of producing a melody. They could only produce one tiring, monotonous sound. Paul's point is that the gift of tongues in its highest form would be, apart from love, just as tiresome as these gongs or cymbals. In our days, much of what professes to be the zenith of spirituality sounds terribly like a tiresome gong. Listen and you will hear the one constant note, me, me, me. It's not only that the apostle is saying that if you use spiritual gifts in the church without love, that it reduces your ability to edify and build up the body and actually serve your brothers and sisters. But, but he's suggesting that all of this is offensive to God. It's worthless in his eyes. In fact, some say that the gongs and cymbals were related to pagan worship, calling forth gods or driving away demons. What's the apostle saying? We could put it in, in more modern language, perhaps, if I... If I preach the best sermon I've ever preached, if I preach with the tongue of the Apostle Paul, the great Charles Spurgeon, but don't do it with love, it's like the noise of traffic driving by on the freeway. If I preach in such a way that the church happens to be built up in God's grace, sinners converted, but I don't do it with love, then it sounds not much different than Pots and pans being thrown around in the kitchen or the incantations of a Muslim worship service. Paul's words are, are quite shocking. The Corinthians must have been flabbergasted to hear the apostles speak in this way. And then he goes on. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have a faith, all faith, so that I could move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. The gift of prophesying is actually the one that Paul will go on in chapter 14 to say that he would rather people prophesy than speaking in tongues because speaking in tongues, unless there's an interpreter, the body can't understand it. It doesn't edify them, but but prophesying was a word that people could understand and be built up. He He says, long for prophesying. But now he says, if you prophesy beyond any other, you know not just some things, but you know all the mysteries of God but have not love. You are nothing. 
by human standards, of course, you'd be the man. Can you imagine today an author, a preacher who knows all the mysteries. His email box is filled up every day with questions. He's invited to be a conference speaker at all the major conferences. People flock to him for advice. He knows it all. Without love, he's nothing. Christ might just say to him, I never knew you. The Apostle Paul is not pulling any punches here, is he? He's not interested in building up self-esteem in a place that God does not esteem. And he goes on in verse 3 to say, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. One writer suggests there was a time when the sacrifice of missionaries was the thing the church was talking about. Were the heroes, maybe that, that young people were invited to admire. Those who gave up everything, all the comforts of their homeland to go to a far land and to risk life and limb. But today that's hardly the thing we speak about. Not even so impressed. But the apostle says, imagine it. Somebody who sacrifices it all. Imagine your life that you give up every form of self-enjoyment, all the toys, all the entertainment, all the creature comforts. So you can give all your money to those who are poor and hungry. And you are willing to die a martyr's death and be burned at the stake. And many people you would think would stand amazed at that. But if you do without love, Paul says, it profits you in God's eyes nothing. No reward. People might praise your name, but before the eyes of God, it's nothing. See what the apostle's doing here? He's warning against a, a false spirituality where we, we measure how spiritual we are by, by what we do. And there's ways to do all kinds of things in the church for self and not for others. Without the spirit of Christ, the spirit of love. The apostle's not saying here that spiritual gifts don't matter, they're unimportant. He, he says, as I mentioned in chapter 12, that these are manifestations of the Spirit. These are the gifts of Christ to his church, and he gives his people spiritual gifts. But he is saying if they're not regulated and used in love, then they become worthless in God's eyes. It doesn't matter if you're the most diligent minister or elder or deacon who carries out all the duties of office faithfully, or if you're very good at welcoming visitors, or if you sacrifice so much time to serve in the kitchen or on a committee or in the nursery. It doesn't matter if you've given away more than anyone else, been so tremendously generous. If it's not motivated by love and regulated by love, then it's no service to the Lord at all, despite the acclaim and the applause of men. So as we hear this warning tonight, it's a powerful warning. You can each, before the Lord, ask, what have I done or what am I doing in the church of Christ that 
doesn't arise from love. It isn't in the pursuit of giving up myself to do good to another, which is what love is. How much have I done in the church for the praise of men or to feel important? How much is entirely for the good of others? Where am I more concerned about using my gifts than I am of serving other people? Where have I confused gifts with grace? Where I have measured my spirituality by what I get done instead of where my heart stands? Where in the church would I serve more helpfully if I did it more lovingly? It would be a difficult thing to take, wouldn't it, tonight? To discover some place of our most eager and self-sacrificial service was actually not so self-sacrificial, but was done for self. But that brings us to the third point, the Christ of the warning. Not just the context, the content, but finally the Christ of the warning This is good news tonight because it's Christ's word. Christ's word. Not the word of the Apostle Paul, first of all, or last of all. It's the word of Christ. And he's the owner of the church and he is her Lord. And he declares how it's to go in his house, what the the rule is to be in his family. And he is not exposing us here in order to direct us to some human virtue that we need to work up. Christ exposed us here to draw us to himself, to himself. The calling here is to know the love of Christ. And that's good news in our self-absorbed culture, isn't it? Paul told Timothy, you know, there's going to be perilous times in the last days. Men will be lovers of themselves. And here we are. Has there ever been a culture where people love themselves more than our culture? We could never escape our self-centeredness in our own strength. I read Titus 3 this morning, but listen to it again. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. We were, we were beautiful, weren't we? But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness which we had done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God was not attracted to us because we were so loving and lovable. It's not what the church is about. It's not the gathering of all those who are such beautiful people. But it's the story of God who came to a people who loved themselves. And by his grace and mercy, turn them right side out. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see that? The manifestation of God's love is in sending his son. Let me read you this from Leon Morris's commentary. He's a New Testament scholar who wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians, and he, he speaks of the word throughout 1 Corinthians 13, the word love, in the Greek it's agape, word you've heard. But he, he says of this agape, this Greek word was not in common use before the New Testament. But the Christians took it up and made it their characteristic word for love. Whereas the highest concept of love before the New Testament was that of a love for the best one knows, the Christians thought of love as that quality we see on the cross. It is a love for the utterly unworthy, a love that proceeds from a God who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought whether they are worthy or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness in the beloved. The Christian who has experienced God's love for him while he was yet a sinner has been transformed by the experience. In his measure, he comes to practice the love that seeks nothing for itself, but only the good of the loved one. Agape love, God's love, God's love revealed at the cross. Go back through and read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, and ask yourself, who is able to speak in the tongues of men and of angels? Who is able to prophesy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge? Who has faith that can move mountains? Who bestowed all he had upon the poor and gave his body to be destroyed? Well, only one, our Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke in an eloquence beyond any man. He spoke to angels in his glory in heaven. He spoke to the Father and to the Spirit. But he didn't use all of that to escape the cross or to serve himself, but he humbled himself and came down from heaven for us. He knew all mysteries and all knowledge, but with that knowledge he did not shame us or turn away from us, but he spoke truth to us. He gave all he had, no place to lay his head, He gave his body to the cross, not for the praise of men, but for our salvation. Love is to seek the good of another at cost to ourselves. And Jesus Christ is God's love incarnate. He says to his disciples, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so Christ came to rescue the Corinthian congregation. And Christ comes to rescue us from ourselves. The resource that we need to be delivered from our self-seeking and to serve in love is the resource that's found in Jesus Christ alone. So, brothers and sisters, as we, in the next I don't know how many weeks, look at this passage. We want to pray that Christ will convict us of our sin to lead us to Christ, but that then his spirit will live in us to shape us 
by this word. It's been often said that when you come to that second paragraph in 1 Corinthians 13, you could replace the word love and it with the name Jesus. Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. This is our Savior. But before you do that, it might be helpful to try reading the paragraph by putting your own name in there and seeing how far you get. And as we find our shortcomings, then how beautiful it is to us that Christ is the essence of love. He is the revelation of the Father's love. And he is the head of the church and the spirit who is shaping his people. Try it this week to read paragraph two with your own name in there. And then read it throughout loud with the name Jesus in there. And pray that the Lord in his mercy will continue the good work he's begun in us. And as we see the beginnings of love in our hearts and rejoice in the love in this congregation God has worked, yet we strive evermore to put on Christ Jesus and to reflect in his church the glory of our Redeemer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that You're never content to leave us to ourselves. And we're glad, Father, because we are short-sighted and we are tone-deaf. And we often think that we are greater than we are. God, your words humble us. It's not pleasant to think that our service in your church might be motivated by self-interest. But God, we pray that you would give us a true understanding of our sin and the hearts to humbly consider it that you would convict us in the proper places by your Spirit, so that in knowing ourselves and our sin, we might know our need of Christ and be all the more amazed that he has so loved us. And Father, we pray that as we consider what love is in 1 Corinthians 13, that we might grow in that. We might grow in our patience and our kindness. We might grow, Lord, in thinking well of others. Well, Father, we pray that in these ways the spiritual gifts you give us might be employed in a way that honors you and delights you and builds up your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.